Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Baker's Comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. Here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. And welcome back to Hey Kids Comics. Isn't 2014 spectacular? It's been a great week so far. It's been a magnificent year so far. No different from the last. Very little difference from last year Mm. in many respects. Yes. That, lovely listener, is our subtle way (laughs) of saying that for us, Christmas hasn't happened yet. No, it's The not. Christmas episodes haven't been recorded yet. They have not. For reasons far too complicated to explain, we've recorded this episode before we did the Christmas ones. It makes sense in my head. It, it does. When we're laying them all out and plotting what to do, doesn't it? It's just because you didn't want to get into the Christmas spirit a month before Christmas. That's very true. I didn't want to be recording a Christmas episode three weeks before Christmas. I mean, it makes it a little bit tighter for me to be able to edit and release it, which I've already done. Yeah. So if you listened to it and it was released on Christmas Eve, then I met my deadline. <laughs> if I didn't, then you didn't. So, anyway. Finish work next weekend, well, you'll get it done. I did finish work three weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so you did get it done. Yes, yes, yes. Time travel. Oh, <laughs> it's very, very confusing to me. Anyway, so, um, do we have anything exciting to discuss? About 2014. I'm excited about Godzilla in three, four months. You've been excited about Godzilla for the past six months before you saw any footage. Since seeing footage, you've been like, (laughs) get off the ceiling, Ringo! (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Don't dribble all over yourself, you numpty. Anyway, yeah, we'll do a couple of emails to to get with the programme. The first email tonight is from Chris Keith. Hello, Christopher. It's entitled Doctor Who episode. Yes, please. I'm glad that you asked that question and answered it with a yes, please, because otherwise (laughs) that entire episode would have been worth skipping for you, wouldn't it? It's answering our questions for us. It's fortunate. What if we didn't want to do a Doctor Who episode? A bit late now. We've already done it. (laughs) Time travel. Time travel. We could go back in time. And not do it. As evinced by this show. Because this show is taking place after one we've not recorded yet, but that one's already happened. Isn't it awesome? This is why I like reading orders. (laughs) Well, in listening orders, it'll all make sense. Gentle Leyland, says Chris. Greetings from frozen Dallas, Texas. Yes, we don't handle cold weather here very well, and most of our stores now resemble something out of Road Warrior. Well, without the accents, of course. I've gone a bit behind with the episodes, unfortunately. This Doctor Who episode now leaves me too behind, but catching up is going to be so much fun. I've heard that a lot recently. And, you know, that people have trouble catching up and, and stuff. Now I realise there's a lot of quality content out there. But my goal yeah. with this show, just right. this show, not anyone else's, just our show, okay. is to make one that makes you stop listening to other shows <laughs> because we've just released a new episode. Now if you're falling behind, That's I can the... only assume 
the, we're releasing them too frequently. Yes. <laughs> so maybe we should pull back to a bi-weekly or a monthly schedule. No. So it becomes more of an event when a new episode comes hey, out. Hey, kids, quarterly. Ah, perhaps people are now taking us for granted that every week I think we so. release an episode. Every yeah. Thursday, like <laughs> clockwork, there's an episode. Perhaps <laughs> that has done us no favours. Maybe. Hmm. It's worth thinking about. Because mm. I'm sorry, if we're not releasing a show that makes you go, Oh, hey, Kids Comics is out. Forget what I was listening to. <laughs> the shipping forecast. Forget the kids. Yeah, forget the kids. Forget <laughs> the shipping forecast. Forget that the Archers is on. <laughs> we need to listen to Hey, Kids Comics right now. Otherwise, all of our topical gags wasted. Mm-hmm. All of them. Every one of them. <laughs> Every single topical gag that we do. All of those ones that we avoid not to do. <laughs> All those ones that we try not to do. <laughs> anyway, Chris continues. So, you know, Doctor you know, Who. Oh, sorry, what Chris go actually said is reminded me of something. What? You know, you know how it's well known that we Brits don't take the snow very well, as evidenced by the past four years. I love the snow. Where we've all panicked whenever it's snow. I know, a little bit of snow flurry. It's the worst snow in years! Yeah, um, we, we have the radio on our art rooms whilst we're working. And I overheard an advert that said, what was it? Switzerland survives during the snow. <laughs> Snowfall in Switzerland. Switzerland doesn't grind too hard. Yeah, it's, it's dramatic music. <laughs> and a booming voice. Switzerland survives. Nice for them. <laughs> England has snow. Trains cannot move. <laughs> I love the snow. I think it's across the worst thing that can happen. I can't get to work. Oh, Big no. deal. Oh no, see my panic. <laughs> Anyway, Chris continues. As detailed in my many emails, I started with Christopher Eccleston and worked my way to the present. As it was frosty cold, plus the heater was not quite working in the homestead last Saturday, November 23rd, staying inside under blankets was the order of the day. We, of course, not only watched The Day of the Doctor, but BBC America rolled out a marathon all week of episodes of the 2005 series to the present. Before I get to the comics and The Day of the Doctor, I did want to mention that we also watched An Adventure in Time and Space, and I just love that film. I can see how some might groan at the cameo of Matt Smith at the end. I don't know why. I thought it was a sweet tribute to the original, and very similar to the Vincent van Gogh episode of The Eleventh Doctor, when he went to the museum to see how his work is revered. On to the comics. Number one, classic who? I've tried to read some of the classic, which have been reprinted by IDW. I can't do it. I can't read about a talking penguin. I don't know why. I enjoy talking raccoon, but I draw the line at waterfowl. Part of the problem is still a lack of familiarity with the subject matter, which I will address with Tennant. My exposure to Tom Baker growing up was minimal, and what I saw, well, I thought it looked incredibly silly. I've tried since, but haven't made a serious effort to watch. I intend to attempt again early next year. Thank you, Netflix. I'm sorry, if you don't like Tom Baker, you're dead inside. <laughs> One of the few times I will make a sweeping generalisation. <laughs> Isn't it? Number two, IDW Tenant. I should like this book more, but this was my problem. I used the book as a vehicle to introduce myself to the Doctor. Mistake. This boot required you to be caught up with the episodes. To the credit of the material, it was enjoyable, but I need to reread after watching the episodes to see how much I didn't get when I read it the first time. This will most likely be my mission number 10 for 2014. <laughs> What's missions one through nine, Chris? <laughs> I bet it's boring stuff like go to take trash <laughs> out and let the cat out and stuff like that. Switch light bulbs. Yeah, don't leave doors open. Yeah. Well, the thing with that issue, though, was... It's been, it was released in Doctor Who magazine, which comes out 
side by side with the TV show. Yeah, that wasn't an IDW issue, was it? Yeah, so it's more of a supplement to the TV show. Mm. And I don't know if they get those in America. I don't know if they get no. Doctor Who magazine or if those strips are printed. Because there's some wacky thing with Doctor Who comics rights, yeah. isn't there? We're not supposed to get the IDW series over here. Right. Because the rights for Doctor Who comics are held by somebody else over here. Right. Or they were, well, until the end of 2013. And obviously we are now in 2014, <laughs> of so course. that no longer applies. Yes. Number three, IDW Smith. Okay, now here's the stuff I'm enjoying. Mainly because I just finished watching The Eleventh Doctor, and this reads like Max Smith and Jenna Coleman. I just finished the most recent story with Oscar Wilde in Deadwood, and I loved it. Another reread to be sure, but at least this time I knew what I should already know. As for the 50th, loved it. I found it very enjoyable and was so happy that BBC America has taken it upon themselves to simulcast this and hopefully the Christmas special. I'm eagerly awaiting it under the introduction of Peter Capaldi. From the limited exposure I've had to him, I'm expecting great things. <laughs> Sadly, he won't be swearing like Malcolm Tucker, <laughs> which would be awesome. It would. But sadly, it won't happen. But Peter Capaldi's a great actor, mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm looking forward An to it. An R-rated Doctor Who show. Yeah, where he's just swearing at the Daleks <laughs> yeah. all the time. Thanks for continued excellence, you're very welcome, but try to get it in gear. I'm oh, sorry. And I'll try to get in gear with writing now things have moderately slowed at work. Thank you, Chris Keith. P.S. I had to laugh the other morning on a re-listen to your Thing episode, currently available on 2TrueFreaks.com. Well done, Chris. Where you covered an old issue of Marvel 2 in 1. Why, you ask? You probably don't remember this episode, but in the show you discussed Burr Grylls and his tips for crossing water while keeping your clothes dry, Andy. Drinking your own pee. Yes. That was a completely different, that was a completely different episode of Burr Grylls. Are you sure? And it was a completely different night out. <laughs> One that you said stayed between us. So, quite frankly, I'm a pop- that you mentioned it because that shows you can't be trusted (laughs) what happens on nights out stays on nights out that's all I'm going to say to you the funny thing is Chris continues the first time I listened I was mid-marathon training and decided in my infinite wisdom to brave a rainstorm to run 16 miles I soon learned that Dallas does not have the best drainage for a monsoon and I was almost knee deep in water before calling it a day making my way to a supermarket and texting my wife to come and get me <laughs> so he won't run through the monsoon he'll make his missus drive through it Unless they've got one of those cars that doubles as a water boat. <laughs> that would be awesome. Yeah. Like skis come out of the wheels for it to just surf across the water. That would be brilliant. Alas, it's probably not real. That's probably, probably just not. in my head. Uh, it, there's one in, in Liverpool. There is. It kept sinking. <laughs> it sunk twice. <laughs> It never dawned on me to think, had I paid better attention to the episode, I would not have been completely soaked. Well, not as soaked. It was good time sitting in the local market by the bakery section so the oven would warm me up and try not to look homeless. <laughs> Excellent. Well, you know, Burgrills and me, survivalist. You know, listen to, listen to me. When I talk about surviving. Luke Giaconetti's emailed a bombastically bodacious blowout between everyone's favourite Emerald Crusader and the Thunder God from Asgard. That's a great title. Mm-hmm. I like that title a great deal. My favourite fashionably fearless fellows continues Luke. Are we fashionably fearless? We are, yes. I say I'd say we're fearlessly fashionable. Yes. I think so. 
have no idea. <laughs> An intriguing matchup for a read-off, Silver Age, Thor, and Green Lantern, two characters whom I am only familiar with in this era through their team books, both of whom take a definitive science fiction approach to their superheroics, and both, of course, having migrated to the big screen, admittedly with different end results. Going from you guys' take on it, and Andy's incredibly dramatic synopsis, I have to give the nod to Thor as the book which sounds most interesting. Michael's jokey suggestion of, and then Metron shows up, I think informs what Kirby was doing with this book, and given my love of his fourth world stuff, makes me think I would enjoy this era of Thor. Green Lantern, on the other hand, doesn't seem to have the same level of clever developments and details which Flash was enjoying around this time, so I'm less interested in those stories. Good to hear some insight into both books, of course, so thanks for the comparison. I'm sad to hear you will not be doing a showdown between Shellhead and the Winged Wonder. Truly, that would have been an interesting purring, as they seem to have many differences. Tony is a human womanizer wearing a suit of armour. Qatar is a married man from Thanagar without a shirt. As they do similarities, both use advanced technology to fight crime and have a thing for redheads. Maybe next time. I'm liking this pitch. Carry on, Luke. I like how he segued into our old trailer. Very good, I like that. Thank you very much, Luke. Much appreciated. Our next email is Michael Bradley. Hello, Michael. Hello, Andrew. Not you. Uh, it's entitled Silver Age Battle Royale with Cheese. Hey, Leyland. Hello, Michael. I wanted to drop a line to let you know I've greatly enjoyed your Silver Age comparisons episodes. Well, thank you very much. We've, we enjoyed doing them. Yeah. They were a good laugh, though. As a DC kid through and through, but aware of the, how shall I say it, endearing silliness of the Silver Age DC, I was fully prepared for a less than favourable look at the DC selections. Much to my surprise, in both the Flash and Green Lantern episodes, you gave a fur look at all books, and DC seemed to come out higher than expected. That was quite the surprise, given that at times, it seems DC gets the short end of the stick when it comes to love from fandom at large. While I know the Silver Age podcasts are a limited run, I'd love the idea to become an occasionally regular feature. Comparing books from the big two that were side by side on the stands could make for an interesting look at the history of comics. If nothing else, maybe a sequel dipping into the Golden or Bronze Ages is in order. Either way, keep up the great work. I'm terrible at being a letter hack, but the show is always enjoyable. Best, Michael. P.S. Until you pointed them out, I never realised the similarities between Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, the Barry Allen origin. Oh, sorry. And the Barry Allen origin. Now I want a little more for them to refilm the telemovie with Tommy Maguire sporting a bow tie and a crew cut. <laughs> um, well, thank you very much for that, Michael. We appreciated that. A couple of things... Um, in that email. The point of the exercise was not to tear the Silver Age a new one. And I think if we'd done that, that would have been defeating why we did it. The point of it was to look at it from the point of view of, is this as silly as everyone seems to say it is? Mm. And whilst there is an element of that, it's undeniable, it was there in a couple of the books we covered. It's not just that. It's not just that. And there's content. Exactly. Mm. Well done. So that was the point of it. So we, the plan was never to pick comics that we were going to rip to pieces. We have never picked something with a deliberate view to just turn it a new one. That's not what the show is. That's not what we're doing. We enjoy comics. We have not... plenty of X-Men from the 90s. Yes. Well, not just that, but... The only time we've done something where I've ripped it apart was Civil War. Yeah, well, that was my choice. Yeah, so, you know, so we don't go into doing something with a view to turn it to bits. We would never do that. Secondly, your idea about comparing books that were released on the stands at the same time was the initial idea of that Silver Age season. The problem with that was Showcase 4 came out in 1956, did we say? Mm. 
which was a good five years before Marvel, as we know them, started. Yeah. So it became readily apparent to me that that wasn't going to work, because I definitely wanted to cover Showcase 4 as the beginning of the Silver Age of Comics. So then it became, alright, let's compare a similar character, or a similar feel, or a similar theme. I know I stretched it slightly with Batman and the Silver Surfer. Yeah. But both had a Lost in Space feel. Okay, so yeah. that was that was the theme that I was going for. Mm. So the idea of looking at books that were released at the same time was the original impetus for that series. And it just didn't work out that way. We have talked about doing the same with the 70s. Yeah. But steering ourselves away from the superhero books. So if we did the 70s, I think we would probably do that. We'd say pick July 1974 and pick a DC and a Marvel book mm. and do it that way. Because that, that is very interesting to me to actually compare like for like. But we would do like for like. So if we picked a man thing, we'd want a swamp thing and, and vice yeah. versa. We'd want similar ilks. Excellent. So yes. So thank you for pointing that out. Uh, or making me point out that that was the original idea and thank you very much for emailing I'm glad you enjoyed the show Chris Franklin has almost emailed in about the Silver Age Silver Age Part 2 hello Leyland hello Chris a few thoughts on your excellent second Silver Age episodes a lot of comics historians and modern comics writers mention that Silver Age DC comics were more plot driven and the characters themselves were mostly interchangeable having little in the way of distinct personality compared to the emerging Marvel comics with its imperfect characters that is true but there were hints of personality traits in each of DC's paragons of virtue as seen in the Green Lantern story you reviewed Hal Jordan could be quite the horn dog and the glory hound to boot he seemed more eager to get his name out there and woo the ladies than his fellow Justice Leaguers this was picked up in modern times by writers like Mark Wade, who infused the early League with personality in his excellent JLA Year One miniseries. Retroactively speaking, the cocky Hal persona works even better with Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams' hard-travelling hero storyline, giving Green Arrow an even bigger target to knock the wind out of. Yeah, I, I don't agree that they didn't have any personality. Mm-hmm. Certainly, the, just talking about the Flash and the Green Lantern, as, as we saw, Green Lantern was very much into using his powers to position himself in a position of media awareness, wasn't he? He was attending parties and dating women, and he was putting himself out there as a Green Lantern. In addition to being a hero, mm. there was a certain... Yeah, worship me. <laughs> Whereas Barry was a much more subdued, normal kind of guy. Yeah. And they did do little character beats with Barry, that he was always late, and he was a bit slow, and not in the head. <laughs> but he, he, you know, so they very yeah, they were attempting to do some characterization. Chris continues after hearing your synopsis of the Thor story. Man, I need to read this. Yes, you do. That's an excellent four parts of everything we've covered of late. That was the biggest surprise. Mm. That four part Thor story was magnificent stuff. I'm sorry to say my exposure to Lee and Kirby's Thor is pretty limited, continues Chris, most of it coming from the 60s Marvel superheroes cartoons where they burly animated those comics. The influence on the Thor films was apparent, and I think I see a Thor essential volume or two in my near future. Yeah, go and buy one, because I've tore through that Thor volume 3, essential volume 2, it was fantastic. I really enjoyed Thor The Dark World and knowing that more of the same lurks in these great Kirby-drawn pages makes me happy. Looking forward to Batman and the Silver Surfer? Well, Batman did put on baggies and challenge the Joker to a surf-off back in 1968, so why not? Take care, Chris. Thank you, Chris. Thank you very much. I always like getting an email from Chris. That sounds like an excellent issue. It's the Surf-Up Joker's Under episode of Batman. You remember, we've watched that one. Yeah, he has a surfing competition against the Joker. We watched it when it was ITV4 not long ago. Oh, were you not with us? I have no idea. Right, it may just be me and Anya. Well, is this like those kind of... 
action man figures they did with yeah. Spider-Man but he'd have a jungle outfit essentially yeah <laughs> essentially that's that's the same thing yeah. we'll squeeze another one in before we move on tonight this one's from Gabriel Jimenez hello Gabriel it's simply entitled hey you hello there Leylands hey you Gabriel not heard from Gabriel for a while hope you guys are doing great it's been quite a while since I sent you guys a letter and I feel bad about that I know you say there's no reason for your listeners to feel bad about not writing but heck I can't stop feeling a bit guilty I mean I enjoy your podcast very much even if I have behind on my listening <laughs> and considering that an email is much cheaper than actually sending money <laughs> I'll take emails but money's nicer I feel that by writing, I am paying back in a way for your effort in putting out a continuously fantastic show. Thank you, Gabriel. We appreciate that. Like I mentioned, I haven't kept up with the show recently. Why? <laughs> I'm winding you up, lovely listener. There's lots of great shows out there. Listen to them, then come and listen to us. I'll listen to us and then go listen to them. Yeah, that works as well. Uh, I've actually just finished listening to the Wolverine review episode. I want to be more or less caught up so I can write at length on topics in a timely manner and not say something from months before and have you struggle to remember what it was you said. You could talk about something we did last week, Gabriel. We still wouldn't remember what we said. But this time I couldn't help myself because I just listened to one of your best shows ever. The family episode. That was as enjoyable as all get out. One of the best things of your show is the family dynamic we get. It's usually just between Andy and Mike, but having all the family together, feeding off each other was a lot of fun. You guys have a wonderful family. Congratulations. I'm actually bummed that I was so late in listening to this because I would definitely have sent in a couple of suggestions or questions. Hell, I would have even followed Andy's rules. Why, Gabriel? No one else did. (laughs) Alas, that will have to wait for the next instalment, eh? Notice my subtle hint at asking for another one of these. Uh, it's a possibility. Maybe we should. The Q&A things seem to go down quite well. Mm-hmm. And maybe this time we should ask whatever the hell you want. But I, re- I reserve the right to go, there is no way in hell we're answering that question. I might. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's on you, dude. You're 18 now, you're not my responsibility. Quick word of the episodes I heard recently. Daredevil Yellow. I like Dee Dee very much and was glad you gave the story of his The Spotlight. Haven't read this one particularly because of Loeb, but you made it sound pretty cool, so we'll be on the lookout for it. Jeff Loeb's pretty good in Daredevil Yellow. Spider-Man Blue's better. Yeah. Has to be said, Spider-Man Blue is better than Daredevil Yellow, but I think that's because the source material is better for Spider-Man Blue. I think Captain America White is where it's at. Oh, because that's come out (laughs) in the past month, hasn't it? It has, yeah. That came out at the beginning of 2020. Who would have known they'd released (laughs) all six issues on January the 1st? He kept us waiting. And kept on such a surprise. No solicitations. I I know. He wanted it to be under the radar. I was very impressed. So was I. Very. Who would have thought they'd have killed off the Falcon? (laughs) I don't think anyone saw the reveal of the issues anyway, so... No, no. I'm very impressed with that. That was well done on Marvel mm, per person yeah. Gabriel continues Metal Gear Solid I have played two of these games I was surprised Andy was annoyed at the psychic boss's cool move when you switch control the port I thought that was extremely ingenious <laughs> and I've enjoyed them moderately the comment didn't sound too great I'm afraid did enjoy very much the audio that was inserted into the show though <laughs> great job Michael thank you very much Days of Future Past I am all for the Clermont X-Men love what a fantastic run especially the burn period great stuff very good story but we'll agree how surprised I am that such a powerful influential story is just two issues long still how great was it when comics had so much packed into a single issue absolutely fantastic that's what I think mm-hmm. read a couple of comics recently just blitzed through them because they were just recent ones even ones I enjoy the Injustice Gods Amongst Men annual number one thoroughly enjoyable comic took me 20 not 20 took me two minutes to read yeah by contrast I recently read the Superman Shazam 
issues of DC Comics Presents that I got at the Comic Mart in the 50p box took me about 15 minutes to read. And there was so much fun. Have you ever read any Captain Marvel Shazam? No. There's a villain called the Mastermind who is a sentient worm. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> he's, he's in... Um, he was awesome, is he? He's the main bad guy of 52. Is he? Yeah. Oh, brilliant. He was fantastic. The guy who brainwashes you. He was wearing glasses yeah, and everything. Yeah. Genius. Wolverine Mini continues. Gabriel, haven't read this one, sadly. Love the recap you guys gave and I'm very interested in seeing good Miller artwork. <laughs> Oh, well, a dick. <laughs> it could be. Nightwing Year One. I am a dick fan. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're such children. What was that about contact? Yeah, yes, I'm not afraid to say I dig dick. <laughs> Gabriel's funny. Didier's <laughs> uh, insistence on killing Dick off is symptomatic of what I dislike about the direction he's taken the DC universe in. I will never forgive him for what he did to my beloved Boahaha Justice League. I guess Didier just doesn't dig Dick. It's. <laughs> Do you know, it's childish and immature, yet never ceases to make us laugh. <laughs> Gonna go off topic for a moment, Spartacus. I haven't heard anything from you guys about the show's finale long months ago. Was wondering if you saw it and how you liked it. I would once more like to motion for a couch potato or something of that sort. Will you talk about the show? That would be awesome. One of my all-time favourite shows and knowing you enjoyed it as well makes me happy. I have the show fresh in mind since I ordered the Gods of the Arena and Blood and Sand during Cyber Monday and I'm very excited about re-watching them. Anyhow, keep up the amazing work, you two. Toodles, Gabriel Jimenez. Um, I thought the end of Spartacus was great. I think it was a consistently good series. I mean, let's be honest. I think we've said this before. We started watching it for the violence and the sex. Right. And somewhere along the line, you actually start being dragged into the storyline. And the story is hooking you. And the fact that there's full frontal nudity, lots of sex and violence in it is just icing (laughs) on the cake. Eventually, you were were gripped with the people and the stories. And John Hanna can swear with the best of them. Yeah. He was magnificent in it. The fin- the thing with the ending was, if you knew anything about the history so of Spartacus... It yeah, it's done. Right, okay. It's completed. Uh, you know the ending to the story. The Spartacus legend is like the Robin Hood legend. You know the end of it. Oh, I'm Spartacus. Well, oh, I'm Spartacus. there's a little bit of that in it. But also, like the Robin Hood legend, there's a couple of different endings. Yeah. And what was interesting about the show was, okay, which ending are they going to do? Mm. Now, I'm not saying they didn't play fast and loose with history in some places... But they did try their best to be historically accurate in other places. Yeah. But they went for an, an amalgamation of both the two Spartacus legend endings. Mm. So I was quite I was quite impressed by that. And eventually, Liam, what's his first? The guy, who, Liam McIntyre, the guy who replaced Andy Whitfield, grew on me because it wasn't his fault. Yeah. He was he was trapped between a, a, a rock and a hard place. There really, it wasn't his fault. Andy Whitfield had passed away. But at the same time, it's not like they'd fired Andy Whitfield and brought this guy in and he wasn't as good. Yeah. The guy died, sadly. There was nothing anyone could do about it, so he eventually did grow on me. But yeah, I thought I loved Spartacus. I heartily recommend it. I don't recommend you watch it with children. Well. Because uh, there is a lot of full frontal male and female nudity in it, an awful lot of sex. I only saw a little bit and they were already swerved and there was a three yeah. and like <clears throat> ten minutes into that's, it. That's what the show is. But once you, if you can get, if that kind of stuff doesn't appeal to you, the story is gripping on its own. Yeah. But if you, if you don't mind a little bit of sex and violence <laughs> in your entertainment, then it's it's good as well. Got to say, surprisingly, uh, Angela loved it as well. I originally. I wonder why. Well, there's a certain element of that to it. 
But see, I don't mind if it's um, if it's shared out equally. <laughs> My problem with Thor: The Dark World, a lot of gratuitous, topless nudity. All of it was Chris Hemsworth. Yeah. I'm sorry if we're going to get a scene like that in a film. I want Cat Dennings and Natalie Portman hugging each other in the shower <laughs> to even it out. Now in Spartacus, you got that. Yeah, you were like, oh, I could do without seeing Crixus with no clothes on. But you knew, just a couple of minutes away, you were going to get some some women walking around with nothing on. It was great. So yeah, heartily recommend Spartacus. It was great. Anyway, we've talked about Spartacus on a comic book podcast. I do apologise for that. We're going to move on. We're going to take a quick break and plug somebody else's show because it'll be awesome, but you don't listen to it until after you've listened to us. And we'll be right back with Slam Bradley. Trail of the Catwoman. Shane, I've done it. Again, Paul, then open the window. There's no need to announce it. No, not that. I'm inventing a machine that can erase our memory of Red Dwarf so we can watch it for the first time. Again. Really? Is it safe? Completely. Although you might also forget how to read, write, and do math. I'm a politician. I don't need any of that. Also, it would probably make your head explode. And ruin my hair? No. Let's just find a lovely American couple who have barely even heard of Red Dwarf to watch the show with us. That will be the next best thing to seeing it for the first time. Hi, I'm Angela. This is my husband, Heath. What are you doing in my house? Well, we're just your everyday American couple wandering about looking for someone who feels like watching a show we've barely even heard of with us. Maybe recording a podcast about it. Hmm, that's really convenient. And you can listen in on the fun with the Red Dwarf intro cast. Check us out on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. And we're back. If we were to ask people to name a comic book character created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster, most people would quite rightly say Superman. However, there is another Siegel and Shuster creation that is still around today, kind of, that predates the Man of Steel and appeared in detective comics before a certain Dark Knight. Hard-boiled private dick, Slam Bradley. Bradley first appeared in Detective Comics issue 1, cover dated March 1937, where he was described as an ace freelance sleuth, fighter and adventurer. And despite being just another in a long line of pulp detectives in the vein of Race Williams and Three Gun Terry, Slam does have the distinction of being the first comic book pulp detective. Allegedly, Slam's name and a brief outline of his character came from publisher Malcolm Whelan Nicholson, who offered Siegel and Schuster work on the strip for inclusion in a new magazine. Whelan Nicholson's outline stated that Bradley should be an amateur, called in by the police to help unravel difficult cases. God forbid the police should do the job, eh? He should combine both brains and brawn, be able to think quickly and reason cleverly, and be able to slam-bang his way out of a barroom brawl or mob attack. Take every opportunity to show him in a torn shirt with swelling biceps and a powerful torso a la Flash Gordon. For his part, Siegel has said that we turned it out with no restrictions, complete freedom to do what we wanted. The only problem was we had a deadline. We had to work very fast, so Jerry suggested we save time by putting less than six panels on a page. The kids loved it because it was spectacular, and I could do so much more. Later on, the editors stopped us from doing that. They said the kids were not getting their money's worth. Think about that for a minute, in this era of nothing but splash page comic. Slam would be teamed up with buffoonish partner Shorty Morgan, and the stories often saw him go undercover, just as the early Superman strips would do, and inevitably culminate in a fracas or altercation in bars and alleyways. His square jaw and dark hair may have bore a striking resemblance to a certain last son of Krypton, but this deft mixture of hard-boiled crime fiction 
fisticuffs and action would prove pretty popular, and Slam Bradley would have a successful run in Detective Comics for over a decade, despite that limelight hogger the Batman slowly usurping the comic for himself, and it would culminate with his final strip in Detective, issue 152 from 1949. Ironically, this story, a seven-pager entitled Too Many Bargains, wouldn't even feature Slam, being instead a solo shorty Morgan tale. But you can't keep a good man down, and Slam would return, older, wiser, and more seasoned, in Detective Comics issue 500, cover dated March 1981. How do we know Slam is older, wiser, and more seasoned? Well, he's got grey sideburns. This story reuniting many of the detectives of yore and entitled The Too Many Crooks Caper would not be the first guest appearance by Slam in the title he helped launch, and he would return again to celebrate Detective Comics' 50th anniversary in issue 572, cover dated March 1987. In this story, entitled The Doomsday Book, Slam meets Batman and Sherlock Holmes. Although this would be his last official appearance, lip service would be paid to Slam in the post-crisis DC Universe in the Superman titles, where we would meet his son, Slam Bradley Jr., working as a Metropolis policeman, and Slam's brother, Biff Bradley, would appear in a miniseries, Guns of the Dragon. Darwin Coote would resurrect Slam in the original graphic novel Selina's Big Score, a Catwoman story, but it would take crime comics writer Ed Brubaker to bring Slam Bradley back to his home in a four-part Detective Comics backup strip entitled Trail of the Catwoman. This story set up the aforementioned graphic novel and introduced characters that would appear in the new Catwoman ongoing series. Brubaker is a self-confessed fan of detective noir and crime fiction, and having Slam operate on the mean streets of Gotham seemed a natural fit, with his original home being in the pages of Detective Comics. This story originally ran in issues 759 through 762 of Detective, cover dated August through November 2001. The entire series was written by Brubaker with art by Darwin Cook and Cameron Stewart and inks and colours by Sean Connott and Matt Hollingsworth. In the story we're about to cover, Slam Bradley is recast as a typical noir hero. He's flawed, morally questionable, although in possession of a very specific code of ethics. He smokes like a chimney and his adventures take place in a large, sprawling urban environment, New York or Gotham City. He frequents seedy bars, nightclubs, alleyways and gambling dens in the course of his investigations, which primarily happen at night and in the rain. Part 1. Back in Gotham City less than two weeks, it takes Burley that amount of time for Slam Bradley to find trouble. This time it's in the shape of a case from the Murr of the City, no less, asking him to locate Catwoman. The case is rendered difficult by Catwoman's current status, deceased. Difficult but not impossible, especially as the Murr believes Catwoman's death was faked. Slam takes the case and starts with Catwoman's fence, Leonard Swifty Burgess, who is delighted to assist Slam and even calls some of his friends in for the conference. After Slam has earned his nickname, slamming Swifty's friends headfirst into various walls, Swifty coughs up some intel, namely that Catwoman is dead. Thanks for nothing, Swifty. Casually, Swifty mentions that Catwoman's card was marked after she cacked some broad over in New York. A broad named Selina Kyle. It's not much, thinks Slam, but it's a start. Uh, I thought this was a great opening to this. Mm. I thought it's a wonderful, wonderful little opening chapter with a great opening to the story. We begin in media res 
with Slam engaged in the kind of barroom brawl he was always caught up in back in the day with a hard-boiled voiceover caption box that is proper and correct. As with the best types of these stories, the caption box complements the art rather than detracts from it, and we transit smoothly between flashbacks to now and back again before arriving in the present, just in time for the end of part one. This kind of obscuring of the narrative is typical of the kinds of stories Brubaker and Cook are trying to emulate, the classic film and pulp noir stories of the 40s, which frequently used voiceovers, multiple points of view and fractured narratives to tell those stories. There are many examples throughout this four-part story, and we'll point out a few of them whilst no doubt missing a few more. I love the intro. I'm back in Gotham for two weeks and it already feels like I'm home again. In all the wrong ways. It's good. Yeah, you have, you have your Batman voice on when you do that. And Slam shouldn't sound like Batman, should he? He should be more, I'm back in Gotham for two weeks and it already feels like I'm home again. In all the wrong ways. Does that sound better? Dunno. No. Do, do you sound like you've been smoking since you were ten? Now I'm starting to remember the screwed up parts of this city instead of just thinking about all those great restaurants in Chinatown. It takes a while for Gotham to really soak into you, I guess. And as much as this city's changed over the years, some things seem to stay the same, no matter what. Better? Yeah, it'll do. <laughs> <laughs> am I auditioning here? Am I, I going to get paid to play Slam Bradley in some Radio 4 drama? Because that would be awesome. Well, we'll think about it and we'll give you a call. <laughs> Don't call us. <laughs> you got my agent's number, right? Yeah. Okay, fair the, the agent hookers gave it us. Do you know the first time I read this? Yeah. Do you know what I really considered doing? That we just acted out this story. We wrote the entire <laughs> family in to play the different parts. Your mum would have to be Selena Kyle, obviously, because she's the only real woman in the story, isn't she? <laughs> the only real woman in the house. And the only real woman in the story, yeah. Um, and your brother and your sister and you and me would play all the other parts. Mm. And I thought that would be really cool. And you know what put me off doing it? Go on. The amount of effort it would take to all the sound effects and stuff. I thought that's... that's just, just hit the table. I've that sounds like far too much like hard work. <laughs> and I, I ditched it. But it would make... A magnificent audio drama mm. or graphic audio adaptation because it just lends itself to that because it's all told in voiceover. Yeah. And the voiceover is complementing the images, so that's fair enough. Um, on the first page, like the class division, the harsh split between the haves and the have nots that has, if anything, gotten worse in recent times. There's quite an obvious reference, though, to the have and have nots. Brubaker is being incredibly prescient here, foreshadowing the central theme of detective show Veronica Mars by a good three years. Mm. Which, that's what Veronica Mars was about, wasn't it? Yeah. The difference between the haves and the have nots and the growing divide between them. You know, there's a guy on that f- first page who, who attacks Slam wearing a Batman t shirt. Yes! I like that one. Um, and I love the line, though. I love the caption box, though. Then, of course, there's the Batman, Gotham's own vigilante hero who, for some reason, likes to pretend he's a myth. I love that. Mm. So, especially since Ed Brubaker is one of the few guys who made me believe that Batman is urban vigilante. Sorry, urban vigilante myth. Yeah. When when was this? Because they mentioned that Catwoman or Selina dies during... My understanding, I've yeah. not read... All of he makes reference in this story. I'll mention them later. I've got notes about them, but he makes reference in this story to some of the events of No Man's Land. Yeah. So it must take place after No Man's Land, and at the end of her series, Catwoman slash Selina Kyle is believed to be dead. I don't know how that ties in with No Man's Land. Yeah. Because in No Man's Land, she's very much alive. So that must happen after No Man's Land, but before this. So it's all. Ultimately, I didn't think it mattered. 
Mm. Uh, one of the things that I do mention later on, but I'll, I'll bring it up now, Brubaker does a really good job of weaving the continuity into the story. He mentions stuff from No Man's Land. Mm. Catwoman being arrested and breaking out of jail. He mentions stuff from her previous series was Selina was in with the Murr and the mob and ended up in trouble because of it and thus faked her own death. I don't think that's a spoiler. Yeah. It may be because we've not covered parts <laughs> two through four yet, have we? Anyway, if you thought Catwoman was dead, you've not read enough comics. Uh, but he does it in such a way that it doesn't matter that you've not read those comics, mm. did he? It, it all worked organically within the story. I've not read any of them. And it made perfect sense to you, didn't it? Yeah. And to me, I'd never read the end of Catwoman, although I've read No Man's Land. I did like that pretty much every part of this first chapter, which is only about six pages, is a nine-panel grid, which evokes older comics whilst allowing for plenty of story in a very short amount of time, except for when Brubaker opens the story up and Cook accommodates him with half-page splashes and wide panels. The art's brilliant. Yeah. I don't know what it is, whether it's Cameron Stewart's inks, but it looks tighter well, than Cook's work in New Frontier, doesn't it? Yeah. He, Cameron Stewart's credited on and off with the parts. I don't, I don't think he's credited for two and three. Is he not? I don't think it so. It just says artwork by Darwin Cook and Cameron Stewart in part one. Well, part two. Oh, yeah, just says artwork by Darwin Cook for part two. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I did yeah. not notice that. So I have no idea if he did additional panels and mimicked his art style or if he did ink or what. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It does look different, but not at the same time. Yeah, it's still recognisably Darwin Cook, mm. as filtered through John Romita Sr., which C- Cook always looks to me like John Romita Sr. Yeah. I don't know why. There's a there's a, a similarity there that I always see whenever I look at his art. Page two, how do you know it's crime fiction? The town is dirty, full of large skyscrapers and shadows. It's nice and it's raining. <laughs> Noir doesn't just mean black fog because it's a nice word. It means fedora. Yes. We never do find out why the Murr wants Catwoman, do we? Um, because he looks shifter. <laughs> That's good enough reason. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, just, it's fair enough. Yeah, we don't. It just says it's personal. Mm. That's why. You, and, but other than that, we never find out why. Very strange. The final panel of page three, that is obviously a homage to Dick Tracy. Yeah. The half shot of um, slamming profile with the fedora on. And more evidence of crime fiction, everybody drinks whiskey. In a fedora. In, well, he's not put his fedora on yet. He's only done it once, hasn't he? Yeah. Because the majority of the issue is flashback and flash forward. There's an excellent panel technique on page four of a kind that we've complimented on before. Despite being across the page ostensibly in three separate panels it's actually one long panel showing the passage of time in this case slams pouring over what little information he has on selena we as the reader are outside looking in through his office window through the glass with bradley investigations written on it at slam doing the kind of pi stuff that's very dull reading reports, looking at photos, pacing up and down in his office and trying to make it all fit. I love that, but I love it when they do stuff like that. Mm. It just really works for me when they do stuff like that in comics. Panels that essentially form one long, big one, but actually show time passing. It's very clever, and it takes a really good artist to pull it off. Fortunately, this comic is drawn by a really good artist. It's especially fitting that had Swifty just listened to Slam at the beginning and answered him directly, he could have avoided an awful lot of grief and property damage. Yeah. Because I say in the synopsis, um, Swifty's very happy to see Slam, which he isn't, 
and the people that he invites in just start punching at him so Slam Bradley punches back I, I really like the page where he, he finishes fighting the, but that one the, the, no the one before it all right. where he's, he's fighting the guys gets up straight and he's time and gets hit by a TV <laughs> gets hit in the face with a television <laughs> Because he thinks he's done. That's gonna hurt. Yeah, but look, the best thing about that is you look at his face on the next panel, and he looks so much like Robert Forster in this series. You know who Robert Forster is? No. He's an actor. He's probably be- He's in Jackie Brown. He's the lead actor in Jackie I've Brown. He's not? No. One of Tarantino's best, Jackie Brown. Mm. I think one of his, certainly his most underrated movie. Yeah. I think. But he's also, he's in um, a two part episode of Magnum P.I as one of Magnum's old um, Vietnam Army buddies. He's the lead in the black hole, the Disney side. You've never seen that either, have you? No. Uh, okay. I'm not selling you on Robert Forster, <laughs> am I? Uh, I think he was in Heroes and, and stuff. I'll have to show you a picture of him, because Slam Bradley looks the spitting image of Robert Forster okay. in this story. And that can't be coincidence. It wouldn't be the first time Darwin Cooks cast an actor. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, an act- it's certainly better than just making him look like Superman. Yeah. Which is what he did when Jerry Siegel drew him. I mean, that's because Jerry Siegel was drawing him, I presume. Again, throughout part one, Slam's voiceover clues us into how much he has already learned about Selena, filling us in on her background. Slam is respectful that she has never been fingerprinted. A neat trick, especially since she's been arrested. And how she started by stealing from crooked politicians before eventually just stealing anything that was worth stealing as it became more of a game. Her love of the finer things in life also played a part in her switch from Robin Hood to Thief. The final panels of the story where we catch up with ourselves, essentially, uh, is Slam pulling on his fedora, obligatory for all hard-boiled PIs, and then walking off alone through the neon streets of Gotham is an excellent panel. It's drawn and lit like a frame from a 1950s film, very low-key with its colouring, as is the entire story, and shot through with shadows caused by blinds, lampposts and other objects. Excellent first chapter. Mm-hmm. I love the fractured narrative of it, that it starts with Slam in the middle of a fight. The fight is intercut throughout the entire story with us learning how Slam got here. The fight scene's just the Freeman Yeah, sequence. essentially. Um, but can you imagine linearly, this probably, I don't know if that's a word, this may have actually been quite boring, but by structuring it the way they structure it, you're going, how's he got in this fight? What's yeah. going on? And more and more, as you read it, even though it's only six pages, more information is dribbled out slowly before you get to the end, and that brings you back up to speed. It's excellent. Of course I knew I'd have to dig into the life of one dead woman to find another. But right now, Selena Kyle is all I've got. I just hope she leads me somewhere. End of part one. Good, that. Yeah, it was good. It's excellent, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. I've, I've wanted to cover this for ages, haven't I? Part two. Slam's investigations lead him into one of the investigating officers in a Catwoman prison break, and he learns that the Catwoman investigation went nowhere. She didn't exist. They'd investigated the Kyle connection, but all that had turned up was a deceased sister, Maggie Kyle. Slam follows up that lead at the New York Chronicle, trying to link Selena, Catwoman and Maggie. Slam also learns that there was no autopsy on Selena, and he exhumes her grave to discover a body that may or may not be Selena Kyle. The coroner warns Slam that if somebody went to this much trouble to get her into the ground, maybe it'd be better if he flew under the radar. After all, Selena had been in New York less than a week and managed to manipulate herself between the money men and the mob. Slam realises he should have heeded the coroner's advice after waking up with a large lump on his head and a gun in his face. Turns out somebody paid Catwoman a large sum of money to ice the Kyle Dame. Money they aren't sure was well spent. Gino, the 
negotiator asks Slam nicely to keep them in the loop and after a beating dumps Sam by the side of the road. Things take an even grimmer turn when the coroner calls later to tell Slam that the body in the grave was not Selena Kyle. The Splash 2 Part 2 is excellent. It's a literal dark and stormy night. The rain pelts down as a crane lifts the coffin of Selena Kyle out of the ground. Cook's use of shading and spotted blacks is exemplary, and the gravestone marked with Selena's name takes the centre stage, as with Part 1. Part 2 starts in the middle of the chapter, and then through flashbacks we learn how Slam got here. Unlike Part 1, however, this time the flashbacks only take up the first page of the story, and from there we're into more linear storytelling. As Michael points out, and something I didn't notice, the artwork is only credited to Darwin Cook in this chapter. I haven't noticed that. Well spotted. It doesn't credit the Inca, though. It just says artwork by Darwin Cook. So I, I take that to mean Darwin Cook did everything yeah. in this one. And uh, absolutely magnificent artwork it is, too. The cops drink in a pub called The Thin Blue Line. Mm. Of course they do. <laughs> Where else would they drink? The, the donuts store? <laughs> you, wouldn't drink, donuts? you wouldn't drink in the donut store. Crispy 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 Creme. They don't want coffee. They're after something a little bit stronger. It's film noir. They drink whiskey. Irish coffee. Yeah, well, possible. Uh, I, I wasn't a worse Selena Kyle had a sister. I was. Were you? Yeah. Right, so I don't know this... where from, but right. It's, well, see, I was thinking, is this a red herring? Has Selena set up that she has a sister to cover her own tracks or something? Because mm. I didn't know whether this was an established part of Catwoman mythology, or if it was just added to this story. No, I, I was. I knew that she had a sister who she looked out for. Right. Okay. See, I don't. I don't remember that at all. Unless I was wrong and just made it up. Possibly. And when I was reading this, I thought, ah, oh, that makes sense. That makes yeah, sense sure. to me, perfectly, yeah. Because <laughs> he never finds anything about Maggie Kyle, does he? No. That is a literal red herring that leads him nowhere mm. in the story. So I, I didn't know whether it was part of the mythology that I just wasn't remembering, or if, if Ed Brubaker made it up. That being said, Slam does do some pretty excellent detecting in this story, and Brubaker structures the clues well, with one leading him to the next one. Where he does hit a dead end... Brubaker manages to get Slam back into the story with very little effort. It never seems like Slam makes a ridiculous leap in logic to make the story work. It all seems very organic. I did like that um, the face has all been cut up. So a positive identification is impossible. Where have we, where have we heard that before? Uh, it, it couldn't have been another Darwin Cup. It couldn't have been another... No, no, no. no it couldn't no. have been that adaptation of Parker, by any chance. Because this fits in Parker's world. Yeah. Slam Bradley could quite happily exist in a Parker story, what couldn't he? Slam Bradley chase down Parker? That would be, that'd be cool. It would. It'll never happen. Oh, no. But well, unless Darwin Cook goes, you know what I should do? Yeah. <laughs> but he'd have to buy Slam Bradley, wouldn't he? Mm. Or arrange him. A crossover. A crossover, yeah, which probably won't happen, unfortunately. It's been set up already in the story that Gotham is a corrupt town. So it's not really a surprise that Selina was buried without the proper procedure being followed, but Brubaker does explain that Selina was buried quickly and more than a few palms were greased in the process. It also adds some drama to the story and there is a lot more going on here than meets the eye. And it does lead Slam to his next lead where he asks that very question. Mm. New York Chronicle reporter Spender 
presumably no relation to the TV detective played by Jimmy Nail, reveals to Slam that after Selena was declared dead, there was no real need to follow up on the story. You can argue this was a bit lazy, but as a newspaper man, he's probably only interested in current news. After Selena dies, she's not current news anymore. I thought he was going to play a much bigger part in the story. Spender kind of, he shows up for this one page to get her the coroner report for Slam, doesn't he? And that's pretty much it. Mm. He doesn't He doesn't do anything else. I kind of saw him being like Carl Kolchak, an older version of Carl Kolchak. He doesn't look anything like Darren McGavin, so I don't know why I thought that. But uh, Gino, the mob hood, who is a thorn in Slam's side throughout, shows up for the first time on the next page. This was a very funny scene. Slam gets in the lift and is distracted by a pretty girl who gets out of the lift, which leads us to the next panel where we just see a guy behind him. The following panel after that is Gino, who we learned that's who it is, lifting a cosh, and then the doors just shut, and we get a big sound effect of crack mm. across the doors. The next page is probably the most colourful page in the comic, <laughs> and has Slam in red and pink pyjamas with love hearts on them, lying on a bed with naked women covered only with bed sheets floating around him. I like his big grin. Yeah, because he's unconscious. <laughs> And uh, it's, the, it's the only really colourful scene in the story, isn't it? I love that the moon's got one of those little um, wee willy winky night hats yeah. on, which is hysterical. I like that bit. I thought that was quite good, that we didn't actually see him get knocked out. Mm. And that I don't know if they set it up that the girl walked out, because it's eyeing up the girl that causes him to not be paying attention to what he's doing, isn't it? Yeah. Femme fatales. <laughs> Never good in a crime noir story. You'd think Slam Bradley would know that, wouldn't you? The scene with the mobsters is likewise a scene straight out of any number of pulp novels, comics, films, and every other TV show you've ever seen. Slam has a gun to his head as two men try to pry information out of him as hard-boiled dialogue is traded between all the men. In true Jim Rockford fashion, Slam doesn't come out of this very well. He gets beaten up quite a lot in this story, yeah, doesn't he? Yeah. Maybe he's only about 20, but because of the amount of time he's been beaten up... <laughs> It's because he's hurt to grey at the temples. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all, all those wrinkles, they're, not, they're just scars. Yeah, the well, his nose is very definitely been broken a couple of times. Yeah. Hasn't it? So, yeah, I can buy that. That seems fair enough. Slam pieces together all the pieces of his jigsaw puzzle and comes to the only logical conclusion that Selena Kyle was Catwoman. Was, that was really well done. Hmm. Did you not think? There's no Eureka moment. There's no <laughs> melodramatic, of course... Slam just works it all out from the evidence that he's given, and he does it quietly and simply. And he never even says the words. He never says, ah, Selena Kyle is Catwoman. He never spells it out for you. The reader is just taken along with his thought processes and arrives at the same conclusion he does. And it's exceptionally well done. Slam also learns of Selena's connection to Bruce Wayne, which is a little bit clumsy of young Bruce. Yeah. Uh, I think well, having he, his picture taken although she's not a known criminal is she he, he does something even clumsier in the next part yes he does if you're paying attention at uh, the end of the chapter that the body in the coffin wasn't Selena didn't come as any surprise so it's a credit to Brubaker that it works as a cliffhanger as well as it does it plays into the reader expectations we know Selena can't be dead but the story then becomes about why she did this rather than is she really dead. It's quite effective given that, let's be honest, going into this, you know Catwoman's not dead. Mm. What would have really messed you up is if the phone call said it was her body. Yeah, that would have took the story in a completely <laughs> different direction, <laughs> yeah. wouldn't it? 
Part three. Slams peeking into Kyle's past has brought up some interesting high society connections. The most prominent of which, Gotham's favourite son Bruce Wayne, doesn't take too kindly to Slams' investigations and has him kicked out of Wayne Industries. Gino reappears to let Slam know he's been watched by the mob. By this point, Slam is pretty sure Catwoman and Selina are one and the same, so he hits up the old neighbourhood to see if anyone recognises Selina from a photograph. One guy from a gas station does, but recalls that she cut off all her hair in the restroom and headed to the railway station across the way. Dead end. Things take a turn for the worse when the Batman himself warns Slam off the Kyle investigation in his own inimitable style. Caught between the mob, the police, the Murr and the Batman, Slam considers dropping the whole thing and returns to his office where a dame is waiting for him. A dame named Selina Kyle. Uh, the splash page is wonderful. Slam is the correct way up on the page, but all of his belongings are falling upwards out of his pocket. The caption boxes, more Slam voiceover, clue us into the fact that Slam is upside down. And to see the art properly and read the captions, the reader has to turn the book upside down. The captions tell us he's being upside down. We know this because we have to turn the book yeah, upside down. Yeah, we have to do that <laughs> to learn that he's upside down. I thought that was a pretty neat storytelling technique. Mm. There is a party that sometimes these can get a bit old. That issue of Batman, where we have to keep turning it yeah. round to be able to read it, was clever. But, but in hardcover, I would imagine that was quite difficult to read. In yeah. a regular comic, it worked fine. Mm. But in hardcover, I would imagine it, it was a bit of a pain. But I thought this was really good. I quite like I that. I like his facial expression. Yeah, his facial expression is just resigned, isn't it? Yeah. It's just... Here we go again. It'd be more of a pain in the ass when he goes down to the ground floor looking for those keys, which I'm assuming he's going to need. He he sees that he's fallen down a gutter. (laughs) I hadn't considered that. They're they're, they're the keys to his house and he's carrying his office out. Thanks, Batman. (laughs) Again, the artwork is just credited to Darwin Cook. I merely point that out because I didn't notice. Mm. So so one of us is reading these better than the other one. And it's not me, apparently. Before we find out why Slam is upside down, we enter another flashback that will bring us back to this moment later in the story. Slam makes a mistake. He investigates Bruce Wayne. Throughout this entire page, Bruce is drawn constantly in shadow and the playboy pretense is nowhere to be seen, something Slam comments on when he notes that Bruce wasn't as laid back as he'd heard. Casting a character's face so it is totally or partially obscured with shadow is a very film noir technique. In arty terms, this is called chiaroscuro, which is Italian for light, dark. Chiaroscuro. That's it, thank you. Apparently it's it's Italian. I, I know that. Did you? Yeah. Excellent. Chiaro means light, scuro means dark. That's Excellent. where you get the word obscure from. Is it? Is yeah. that where obscure comes from as well? Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Well, I'm glad we keep you around. <laughs> There's a reason that I had you on the show. Brubaker gives us a sense that the day-to-day life of a PI is drudgery. We've already had Slam admit that a lot of PI work is more luck than judgment, and here we see him trudging from place to place with a picture of Selina trying to track down anyone who may have seen her. The impression given is that this kind of thing is his bread and butter, and it's handled as a cool montage scene would be in a film. Whilst I can see Slam walking around with neon lights flying over his head, Cook tells this in a much cooler fashion. The centre of the page is a grayscale shot of Selina looking lovely because it's a Darwin Cook drawing, with floating heads and captions around us as Slam asks anyone who'll listen. 
A sense of how much he's walked is given by a map in the background that traces Slam's steps. An excellent way of showing time passing and it passing rather tediously for the central character. I like uh, the guy with the afro though. that like, can I keep this? Yeah, yeah I like everyone's reaction to the picture. There's one guy who's just like, nah, I've never seen her. And there's a guy, oh, she's hot though. Tell you that, and he's a bit sleazy, <laughs> quite frankly. That's Mal Resnick. Yeah, yes it is. And then the next guy is, I'd seen her, I'd remember that. And you're like, he's fiddling with himself in his pocket now, isn't he? That's just gross. And then there's a, there's a very pretty redhead who's just, oh, it's hard to say, do you have any other pictures? And there's another slightly sleazy bloke who's, does she have a website? And you're like, oh dear God. And then uh, there's a little girl who just says, wow, she's really beautiful. And then the guy with the afro, yes, hey, can I keep this photo? And you're like, no, because I want it back. Yeah. Not covered in splurge. <laughs> Thank you very much. Until he finally gets to the uh, the owner of Swell's Garage, who says, yeah, I've seen a lovely page. The, the, the economy of storytelling in this, in this story is absolutely fantastic, really good. Selena is also shown as being incredibly smart throughout this entire issue. Here, when Slam finally tracks down someone who recognises her, he learns that she went into the restroom, cut off all her hair, uh, somewhere directly over the road from a railway station. If anyone was following her or looking for her, they wouldn't have recognised her. And Slam's investigation reaches a dead end here. Yeah. He's got no leads from this point. Until <laughs> somebody who really should know better... Makes, makes a little uh, faux pas. Makes an incredible faux pas, <laughs> doesn't he? Yeah. The Batman shows up. Right after yeah. he spoke to Bruce Wayne. Right after he spoke to Bruce Wayne and essentially warns him off the Kyle investigation. Yeah. Slam's not stupid. No. We've seen that in this story. I suppose you could argue that somebody in the story has already warned him that maybe he should keep this a little bit low profile. If somebody's gone to all this trouble to make this dame dead... Yeah. And do it in such a way that there was no autopsy or anything like that. Maybe you should go under the radar. So it's possible Slam may think that Batman has just heard of the investigation through the grapevine. But it does seem awfully coincidental that Bruce Wayne is linked with (laughs) Selina Kyle. And so is Batman. And so is Batman linked with Catwoman. And Slam's figured out that Selina is... Or was Catwoman. And Batman shows up right after he's been seeing Bruce Wayne, yeah. Slam's not stupid. No. Slam could have figured that out. The Batman sequence is typically Batman, but he's no less cool for all of that. He shows up, drags Slam into an alleyway, gets him on a rooftop, and then drops him repeatedly, catching him with his silken rope bat line, dragging him back up, and then dropping him again. Um, this is why Batman works as a scurry character. The art is all dark and heavily inked and Batman is threatening and really quite cool. Slam is shaking when it's all done and Slam doesn't scurry easily. They did try the scene a couple of times in the recent Chris Nolan movies, but for my money they never pulled it off as well as they did in Batman Begins. Mm. With the, what's his name? With our favourite line. Yeah, with our favourite line. But it's, in, in the film it's really well done. Yeah. We've took the piss out of that line quite a lot. It's never been as done well as it's done here. I, I like the line where um, Slam tells him what he's doing. He's like, oh, I'm being chased by the mob and I'm being chased by the mob. So yeah, you might as well just drop me. <laughs> Damn it, you freaking nut job. First the mob's in my face, then the damn cops are telling me to keep out of it, and now you. You know what? Just drop me. Obama just throws him. Yeah, Obama just chucks him off on the rooftop. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I do hope he gets his keys back. (laughs) 
Because there's, there's no indication in the actual story. Unless they all fall out here, where he's got him over the roof rather than hanging. Mm. Oh no, he is hanging him over the edge, isn't he? He looks he's... really angry in this, whereas in the uh, splash page, just looks like he gives yeah, up. Yeah, he looks like he's had enough. little discontinuity. Yeah. But it works for the story, so that's fine. In true P.I. fashion, it's always darkest before it goes completely black, and Slam is about to quit after finding no answers, just more questions. And then Selena shows up. In a true noir Yeah, panel. in an absolutely magnificent noir panel, isn't it? You don't see her face. She's all in shadow. It's all the blinds as well. It's the blinds, again. Yeah. Very noir, blinds. All it needs is some smoke. Yeah. And that would be perfect. That's almost a Ridley Scott shot, isn't it? Mm. That's a Ridley Scott-directed camera angle. Part four. Selena explains she quite likes being dead, but Slam showing her picture around town isn't going to get people to let her be any quicker, and there are things she'd prefer just went away. She knows Slam won't give up, but she needs to know what he's going to tell the Murr. Slam says he won't say anything. He's resigning from the case. It's clearly too much trouble trying to find someone who is obviously dead. Selena leaves, taking Slam's heart with her, and the next day the Murr takes the news about as well as you'd expect, arranging for Gotham's finest to pay Slam his due. It's a quality beating, professionally handled, and Slam takes it, knowing that Selena is free. Returning to his ransacked office, Slam is relieved he had the foresight to burn all his case files, but when Gino shows up, Slam realises the day may not be a total waste of time after all. Uh, it wasn't much of a surprise that Slam didn't give Selina in, and it did leave us with a number of unanswered questions, but it's in keeping with his character as an honourable man, one of the last in Gotham, and there is more than a hint that Slam has fallen for Selina. Yeah. In fact, I don't think it's hinted. No, it's, it's, it? pretty, it's, it's pretty laid out there. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty obvious. Slam quits the case, and yet again, probably to make up for the fact that this was the only chapter of the story that didn't say with a flashback, the scenes of Slam quitting and the Mer angrily refusing to accept it are intercut with flash-forwards. This time of Slam's beating at the hands of the Mer's personal guard, a.k.a. Gotham's finest. The beating is brutal, but there were some nice touches. Slam fights back just enough to make it look convincing, but takes his beating, knowing that if he resists, it'll be worse for him, and throughout he holds a picture of Selina. It's a rather downbeat ending, as expected, as the ambivalent ending is yet another film and pulp noir staple. What did you think of it, Michael? I really liked it. I told you it was good, didn't I? I, I didn't think I would, because it's Catwoman, but... She's burly in it. That, Although um, she is the impetus for the story. Yeah. I liked Slam Bradley. I liked Darwin Cook. I like Ed Brubacker. And I like Darwin Cook, Catwoman. So that was a plus as well. Hmm. I, was, I thought it was great. I really did. I thought it was a fine example of crime comics. Which should come as no surprise, given that it comes from the current doyens of crime comics, Ed Brubaker and Darwin Cook. Brubaker's dialogue is wonderfully hard-boiled, and, as with the best detective fiction, there is a voiceover that manages to complement the action beautifully. My personal favourite being when Slam meets with Swifty in Chapter 1, and the voiceover says Swifty is delighted to see him, where the dialogue has Swifty sell Sam to piss off. Slam shows how good he is with one clue leading to the next, allowing him to piece together the mystery quite well, which is very satisfying and a great sleight of hand on behalf of Brubaker because it obscures the fact that for the reader, there isn't actually a great mystery here. 
even if we haven't read the prior Catwoman stories, we know as comics readers that she isn't going to be dead, nor is she going to be in the coffin. So we're slightly ahead of Slam going into the story. We're also slightly short-changed that we never find out why Selina faked her own death to begin with. This was because this would be the springboard for the Catwoman series by Brubaker that followed this. A good series that recast Catwoman from the purple-clad, balloon-breasted cartoon she'd become previously into a more seriously attired and more realistically proportioned master thief and anti-hero who took to helping people as much as she stole from them. Continuity, as I mentioned earlier, is handled masterfully in this story, with Brubaker referencing Selina running for the Mayor of New York, which was the previous Catwoman series, her escaping prison from No Man's Land, and her supposed death, the end of her last series, without ever being so over-reliant on it that new readers are lost, but also uses it as a launching point for his new take on the character. It probably goes without saying that the art by Darwin Cook is excellent as ever, with wonderful panel layouts and structure packing so much into this short tale, but special mention must be made of Cameron Stewart's inks, which in the first chapter at least managed to take Cook's already detailed pencils and add a gloss to them that really makes the art shine, despite most of it taking place at night. All told, a pretty good story. Short, economical and to the point. It never outstays its welcome and makes you wish this team had done a Slam Bradley series, or at least continued doing these backup strips in detective comics. But, you know, always leave them begging for more. Got a lovely cover by Darwin Cook as well. Mm. Do you like the art? Yeah, yeah. Darwin Cook! <laughs> there is like what is there to say? I had a flick of Cameron Stewart stuff. And I know Cameron, Cameron Stewart's a really good artist. He's just not as good when he's trying to be Darwin Cook. Yeah, and then later on it's it's Brad Radar, isn't it? Mm. It's Darwin Cook and Mike Aldred for the first story art, which is Anodyne. And then Darwin Cook gives up, and I think Cameron Stewart does a little bit of it, and then Brad Radar does a bit of it. And it does seem like they're tr- they're, they are imitating Darwin Cook, whereas I wish they wouldn't. Yeah. Because no one does Darwin Cook better than Darwin Cook does. And Cameron Stewart did a story in Batman and Robin with the art in that is great. Is it? Mm. I thought I knew Cameron Stewart's name. Have you had him sign something? I have, yeah. I thought you had. Mm. So you've met him then? I have. Could have got him signed this? I could could have, yeah. I didn't know that. I got Seven Soldiers and Batman Incorporated signed, I think. Right, okay. Fair news. As we've mentioned, I think, uh, I read this in the trade paperback trail of The Catwoman, which is an excellent bang-for-your-buck trade that collects Selina's big score. This Slam Bradley mini and the first nine issues of the Brubaker Catwoman series. It's a great read and highly recommended, but creates its own continuity hiccup in that it places Selina's big score an excellent crime caper in the vein of Ocean's Eleven, but with more heart and less smugness, at the beginning of the trade, and this slam story follows, despite the slam story taking place beforehand. If you happen to get this trade, and I recommend that you do, read the Slam Bradley story first, then read Selina's big score, as that story kind of spoils this one, and characters that die in that story are suddenly alive in the Slam Bradley one. Right. Don't make any sense if you read it in the way that it is published in the book. I don't know why they did that. It doesn't make any sense to me. But DC just seems strange with the graphic novels. Yeah, do you not think they've not, they're not really putting a lot of effort into them anymore? There is that, yeah. It used to be the graphic novels would have introductions and yeah. context text pieces placing the stories within the time. And certainly in a lot of them, like the best of, the greatest Batman stories and Superman stories in the 80s would have a lot of 
context and different articles and why they chose what stories they chose. And then if you have a look at the ones, the greatest, Batman, the greatest stories, and Superman, the greatest stories that came out in what? Early 2000s? Mm. There's bugger all in them. Well, it's just how they collect them as well. I was looking through the Action Comics one for the New 52. The Grant Morrison stuff. Yeah. And and Andy or Adam Kubert, whichever one of the Kuberts, did a two-issue interlude Mm. that happened in between. And it's very important that it goes in between because Superman of the future, or our present, references that they can only do what they're doing because Superman of the past is doing what he's doing in the past. But they've had that interlude at the end. Wibbly wobbly. Yeah. Right. So they've put the interlude. They put the interlude. So how does it read then? Does it read okay? It wouldn't do because for that interlude to happen, they they heavily mention that they can't do what they're doing without it being set when it was released. Right. So it makes sense if you're reading it in single issues as it's coming out, but not if you're reading it collected. Right. Okay. Fair enough. Okie dokie. Alright, well we hope you enjoyed that, lovely mm-hmm. listeners. I know we did. Yes. I thought I was like, I've wanted to cover that since Angela bought me this for Christmas last year. This was one of my Christmas presents last year. And I read it pretty soon after getting it. Um, which is unusual for me. Yeah. Trade paperbacks normally sit on the shelf for six months and I go, oh, I've not read that. I read all your presents before you do. Yes, that ten- you read all my monthly comics before I do. I'll I let you have the indies and the marvels. Thank you very much. You are. It's very nice of you. So, uh, I've wanted to cover this since I read that Slam Bradley story in this last year because I think it's an excellent little mini-series. I think it's a great story. Next time on an all-new episode, I think we're going to do another single thing. I think we'll do Marvel Zombies. Is that... Yeah. All right. Yeah, we should do Marvel Zombies. All right. Go on. I'm in the mood for it. So next (laughs) time you would be in the mood for it. Yeah. Next time we're going to cover Marvel Zombies. Okay. Just for the crack. I'll have to get doing those notes. Yeah. Oh, you doing them? Yeah. Okay. I don't mind. Entirely up to you. I'm not bothered. I know more about it. I guess. All right. Well, you do. You can write the introduction spiel and the synopsis. All right. I'll still do what I do. All right. uh, We'll see you next week. And we'll see you in... Which, for you, is next week, but for us, three other episodes have happened in between this one and next week's episode. (laughs) Time travel is confusing. Mm -hmm. It's it's good it's not 2015, isn't it? Uh, back to the Future. All right. That would be really I was going to say, we've already jumped a month. We've not jumped yeah, another year, have we? We're not having one year later or something like that. We should hate kids' comics one year later. Yeah. <laughs> that would be All fun. of a sudden, I've got a grouchy voice and a scar on my face. <laughs> I've got an eye patch. <laughs> when the nuclear war came, when the robots rebelled, no one was expecting they targeted the comics industry. <laughs> We're all that's left. A ragtag band travelling the Mojave wasteland. How have we got to Mojave, dude? Two true freaks have banded together. Oh, well, we're just the entire two true podcast that we've all got together. And we've created this pack that just go around. Like in The Walking Dead. We're our own little community. I could totally live with that. Anyway, thank you for listening, lovely listeners. Uh, hopefully you listen to this before any other show that you listen to because you know that's the way it should be or unless you save the best to last no <laughs> always do the best first man never save anything always first alright we'll see you next week thank you for listening goodbye goodbye
Comics is a The Devil Will Find Work for Idle Hands to Do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only, and no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us, as we have no money. Certainly this show was not turned into a lucrative revenue stream, as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them, and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com, and Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, your one-stop shop for a plethora of truly fine shows. Join in the fun. We have a website where you can see the covers of the comics we've covered at www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We also have a forum, www.forumforgeeks.com. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. Watching the detectives Watching the detectives Watching the detectives